0: Hello and welcome to Wands and Fronds, the weekly podcast where we cover magic, herbalism, and more. I'm Nick. And I'm Shannon. And we are your co-hosts. And this week I'm talking about something truly dark and foreboding. Necromancy. Mm, Hard stop.
1: Here. Necromancy. On that, uh, you know, ominous note, I'm going to be covering Hellbore and Nyx. So it's going to be spooky this January, y'all.
0: Yeah, I, I I believe the uh the unofficial title of this episode is "Darkness Imprisoning Me."
1: Yeah, but in the Kimia Dawson way, not the Metallica yeah. way.
0: That, that is that. I mean, obviously, that's what I'm referring to. So, if anyone heard that and thought Metallica first, is this really the podcast for you? <laughs>
1: um, awesome. So we have so much to get through today because we realize that when we have spooky topics. Nick and I go off apparently. <laughs> so we're going to like jump right in. And this is a plant topic. That's one of the more general ones because hellbore actually refers to a genus of flowers. Most folks who grow them in their garden are going to be growing like a hybrid of some type. So I think it makes sense to just cover it as a genus. It's like covering roses, you know, right. it covers a lot, but it's mostly hybrids and things that people are growing. Um, in fact, There are actually a lot of common names that liken Helbor to roses, including winter rose, Christmas rose, and Lenten rose, but these are not in the Rosaceae family at all. Helbor refers to the Eurasian genus Helborus, which includes about 20 species of flowering perennial plants in the Ranunculaceae family. And since this is a dark and twisty episode, you may have guessed or already known that most of these species are in fact poisonous. So this is, it's a pretty little flower. If you haven't seen one, they're in the buttercup family. So all of the flowers are bell-shaped. We'll talk about some of the coloring later, but they're, they're super beautiful. The foliage is really dark and leathery looking and it's evergreen. So these really are like, Gardeners love them. But this plant actually has a very dramatic history. Ooh, she's
0: a drama queen.
1: She is a drama queen. There is a theory about Alexander the Great's death that blames his demise on a medicinal dose of Helbor because it was in vogue at the time. We'll talk about the historical herbalism of this plant. And some historians actually believe that the first sacred war, which is in 595 BC, was actually won because the Greek military alliance used Helbor to poison the water supply to the city of Kyra, which is how they ultimately won. And if that is in fact what happened, that would mean that's the first recorded incidence of chemical warfare. And humans are great at killing each other. Isn't that fun? But of course, none of this matters to gardeners. (laughs) These are still... Super popular regardless of their history. They're grown really commonly in the US in zones 5A to 8B. And one of the reasons they are so beloved is their flowering period because these guys bloom in the winter and early spring. So when everything's looking barren and like kind of bleh, you know, you can get a beautiful burst of color with these. They come in a few different colors. They're really frost resistant. You know, it's all good things for gardeners, basically. The flowers colors though, they range from white to black. Black hellbore is the one you'll often see people talking about, but the fragrance here is also a big deal because even once you cut them, like the fragrance is really long lasting. So these are Other than the fact that they'll kill you and maybe give you a rash, these are excellent plants. (laughs) There are a few cultivars that are like the most common ones. Uh, The Corsican hellbore has this really gorgeous pale green cup shaped flower and dark green foliage that looks almost, you know, it looks like leather. This is one of the darker foliage ones, but the pale green buttercup looking flower is also just gorgeous. And like, imagine that on a frosty, empty garden plot, you know? Yeah, these... I mean,
0: yeah, it's like very striking.
1: Exactly. Uh, the setterwort is another common one or stinking hellbore. And it has clusters of small green flowers that have a maroon edge to them, which really sets off the foliage on these, but it's, it's like a really gorgeous green and the edges are just like tinged, with maroon. There's the Christmas Rose Hellbore, which is a traditional cottage garden staple because we love a cottage garden. It has pure white flowers that actually turn this gorgeous soft pink as they age throughout the winter. And you can actually find some large like flowering cultivars here that are in this color scheme as well that are a little bit bigger. However, by far and away, the most popular Garden hellbore are H. orientalis or Lenten rose. And in the US, they bloom in early spring um, around Lent and they add a gorgeous pop of color early in the season. And because Nick and I are total Anglophiles, I did have to have like an honorable mention for the Waller Burton's Rosemary cultivar, which won the Royal Horticulture Society's Award of Garden Merit. So, Ooh,
0: so like the Queen picked those.
1: Yeah. Kind of a big deal. So, you know, take a look. She's pretty.
0: Lady so Grantham he... could never. Oh my God. Lady
1: Grantham wishes. <laughs> Although they would probably just give her the prize anyway, but then maybe she'd be feeling really sweet and would give mm. it to the guy who actually, anyway, I
0: just rewatched Down Abbey. I, I'm, I'm constantly rewatching to Nabby. <laughs>
1: That's fair. So, you want to plant these plants, right? Because you're like, fuck it. They're poisonous. They'll give me a rash if I don't wear gloves, but they're beautiful. You're going to start by putting your seeds in well draining potting mix in filtered sun or a shady location. If you're going to plant directly in the ground, like that's great too, but make sure you don't put it anywhere that's waterlogged. Even if you're planting it in the ground, it still needs to be well draining. Keep it in mind. The cool thing about these two is that they actually only need a few hours of dappled light to do well. And you can even successfully grow some cultivars in shady areas. Willow is upset about this. (laughs) (laughs) I actually saw this really cool recommendation when I was doing my research for scattering these flowers throughout a woodland garden, which I was just like, oh my God, which vibes, right?
0: Just like, Like scattering them in the woodland garden that leads to your cottage, right? Yeah,
1: exactly. To your cottage that's decorated with candy so you can lure children in and eat them.
0: That's what witches do. Yeah,
1: this is a fairy tale. So that just like made me so happy. You are going to want to, though, um, you're going to want to plant these in the fall because they need a stratification period of about 60 days. So remember, stratification refers to a period of it being like cold. And damp, not drowning, but damp. Roses actually need these too. So if you've ever had to plant any seedlings that they're like, oh, put the seeds in the fridge for a while, that's what they're talking about. If you do this outside and you have cold winters, it's really easy to do it naturally. But if you're trying to plant them somewhere where it doesn't actually get cold, you know, the the fridge really is your friend here. So you'll want to water the plants deeply once they are established though. And every spring remove the older leaves because everything I read online said they can kind of look shabby after the winter. So just go in and like clean it up. You do wanna be careful when fertilizing these because like a lot of flowering plants, if you have a fertilizer that's too heavy on nitrogen, you'll end up with really beautiful foliage but not much in the way of flowers. And there's this great trick for remembering What the different like NPK in your fertilizer stands for. So the saying is up, down, and all around. So N is nitrogen, it's great for foliage up, phosphorus is down. It helps you grow really strong um, roots, which are also going to help with your flowers, but phosphorus is primarily for roots and potassium is all around, which is good for like flowering and overall plant health. So that's the NPK ratios that you'll see a lot of times in fertilizers. Anyway, up, down, all around. Overall though, the care for these plants is really simple and straightforward, which is nice. Something that's beautiful, will bloom in the winter, has evergreen foliage, and is actually not super needy. Awesome,
0: right? She's so, she's she's giving us easy mode.
1: Oh, it is. It's easy mode. So I do want to talk though about the medicinal history of this plant. It's hella poisonous, y'all. Like I am not going to be suggesting that anybody ingest this. But there's some interesting history here. So the name Helbor is actually from the Greek Helboros, which literally means injure food. So <laughs> it was named after its renowned use as a poison. Ancient herbalists did use hellbore in really small doses to cure madness. It was Which supposed
0: kind to kind of it does beg the question, why was Alexander the Great taking a medicinal dose of hellbore?
1: Either madness or parasites probably. So Maybe
0: syphilis, you know.
1: You know, syphilis was a big one back then. They did there was this there's this story though about the healer Melampus that says that he gave it to King Argos's daughters. Um he gave them some hellbore in milk to bring them back into their senses after Dionysus drove them mad. So sometimes you'll actually see the plant called uh, Melampodium for Melampus. But this the idea here for, you know, ancient herbalists was that it's supposed to help treat an excess of black bile, which can lead to melancholy. So, Mm. you know,
0: naturally,
1: naturally, it is a really strong emetic which means it causes poisoning. So it could theoretically clear an entire body of parasites with a small dose, but it's really easy to overdo it. So they, they did, again, sometimes for parasites, they would use this, but even Pliny the Elder, who you know we give a lot of credence to good old Pliny around here, but even he recommended that the very young, the very old and the weak avoid taking it altogether. It was also, though interestingly, included in recipes for abortion wine in the Middle Ages, which I'm sure a poison that can almost kill you will definitely cause a miscarriage. So I guess in that sense it was effective. But also petition to bring back abortion wine.
0: Oh my God! Okay, I literally I hate to be this guy, but I saw this meme today that was like one of those laughing cow cheeses. you know where it's like the individually wrapped little wedges but um it it, it, it obviously photoshop but it was plan brie
1: <laughs>
0: it was like a soft cut Triple cream contraceptive cheese, and I was like, <laughs> "That's the perfect pairing uh, to go with your abortion wine." With your
1: abortion wine, it's going to be an abortion charcuterie all around. <laughs> so, <laughs> I do also want to add. I know I've talked so much about how poisonous hellbore is, and i I want to say it's a gruesome death following a shit ton of puking because it's an emetic, tongue swelling, throat swelling, and your heart rate slowing you will eventually succumb to cardiac arrest, but it's not like immediate. You're going to be feeling real bad for a while. So, you know, these days, like there are treatments for seasonal depression. If you have worms, you can go to your pharmacy. Just don't, don't do it. Don't, don't take it. It is also worth noting that even touching it can cause like contact dermatitis for a lot of people rashes. So if you grow it, again, gloves on plant. I think it's worth it, but you do need to do that. Uh, also, I I did find this very entertaining too, that both um, Dioscorides and Pliny wrote that if an eagle flies overhead as hellbore is being harvested, the harvester will be dead within a year. So if you are growing it at home, wear your gloves, but also look out for eagles because- that's bad news, bears. So,
0: yeah, I, you know, good advice. Get yeah. Better safe than sorry.
1: Watch out for eagles, y'all. This plant, though, I'm sure you can guess, has a hell of a magical history, too. So, this is a feminine plant associated with Saturn and the water element. And it's like, are you surprised at all after learning about this that it's associated with the great malefic Saturn? Of course. This flower is necromantic, which you will learn a bit more about necromancy soon from Nick, but you can plant it in graveyards to gain the the trust and allegiance of the dead. I should also say, though, please don't plant it in graveyards that do not belong to you and don't plant it on other people's graves because they're poisonous, you know? be cool it was an ingredient in a lot of medieval flying ointments uh but again please don't diy one you could trip balls but you could also die we covered flying ointments in one of our first episodes as a qwp so go check this out um the plant was also considered to be an elixir for eternal youth and in some ways again that's kind of true if you take it and die when you're young that's true young
0: uh die <laughs> die young forever young
1: forever young in uh anyway in medieval astrology um hermes trismegistus connected helbor to the demon star algol which is in the constellation of perseus and it represents this uh, slain head of medusa and the reason you need to know that is that there are some hermetic manuscripts that say the juice of black hellbore and wormwood placed under a diamond while under the influence of algol would bring about hatred and courage, protection and preservation of the body, and bring vengeance to all one's enemies. So a busy little juice. And, and
0: it sounds so simple, you know, right? Just so black hellbore
1: and wormwood juice, NBD. There's also a piece of French folklore about a sorcerer who would throw powdered hellbore into the air around himself and become invisible. Also sounds like way to die. It also was alleged that witches used hellbore to summon demons, but we all know that busy witches very rarely make time for demon summoning, so that seems silly. But there is so much duality about this plant, like magically, right? It can both cause and cure madness, so you'll see it in curses as often as you see it in spells banishing mental illness and banishing you know mental strain so it's also useful in exorcism you know remember all the vomiting it's good at helping with that i guess (laughs) and help or on the note of it being like an emetic and helping with parasites it's also said that it can help you if there are parasitic spirits attached to you so that kind of you know, like shaking it off exorcism. You know, it's like exorcism light. There are also some really old manuscripts that describe carrying the dried root of hellbore as like a protective amulet, similar to how you would carry mandrake root. So, but because there's so much poison and irritation and this is all like dangerous, I think this is a really good candidate for making flower essences. So what you would do is put a container of water next to the flowers If they're pointed slightly down, I think that magically it makes the most sense to put it to where the flower is facing the water. And you just kind of allow the essence of the plant to be imparted into the water. I would suggest doing this on a dark moon because I feel like that sounds just right, especially if it's in Capricorn, because Capricorn is ruled by Saturn. So I feel like you would get some really awesome. Flower essences that way. And that's all for this dastardly beauty. I used a few sources today Wikipedia, good old Wikipedia, gardeningknowhow.com. I was so excited to get to use my new book. Well, new, it was a birthday gift, but I haven't been able to use it on the podcast. It's a book called Wicked Plants The Weed That Killed Lincoln's Mother and Other Botanical Atrocities by Amy Stewart. It's so much fun. Gardenandhappy.com, the purple and goodwitcheshomestead.com.
0: Mm, well, saucy little number that hellbore is. No. Uh no, it's funny because you were like, Alex- Alexander the Great possibly died from Hellbore. And so I was like reading about the side effects. And I was like, yeah, not a not a good time.
1: No, yeah. no. That's a rough death. I mean, like,
0: I mean, even if you were crazy with chlamydia or syphilis or whatever, and or, you know, just crawling with worms, I think I'd rather be crawling with worms. honestly.
1: I I think so, too. And it's not like there weren't other things that could help with that. Right. There were still other worm treatments that weren't a poisonous plant, even in medieval times. So
0: try something else. Maybe try something else. You know, work your way up to that. Work your way up to that one. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, but okay, so I have to talk about a very big topic today, which is necromancy. Ah! Uh, I just have to say, I'm so excited. Uh, it's exciting. Um, and it's kind of like, it's an around the world trip. Um, it's It's going to cover a lot of time. But, you know, I think kind of diving in, it's like, I think really the surprise... Of the whole thing is that, you know, like a a middle school girl fucking around with a Ouija board asking if, you know, Danny from homeroom is going to end up being her husband is actually like very true to the original spirit of necromancy and like what the word even means. Uh, But
1: also, I think we all deeply suspected that young girls were necromancers by na- just naturally.
0: I think, yeah, there's a bit of uh, of natural necromancer in <laughs> in that that lovely time in a young girl's life when she discovers necromancy. <laughs> um,
1: you know, it's just so exciting. There's so much to learn about your body and dead
0: bodies. <laughs> <laughs> um, but okay, so I think though in modern times. When we hear the word necromancer, most people are thinking of a dark sorcerer, like commanding sort of a gruesome army of reanimated corpses. And I think mostly that is because we all watch way too many horror movies as a society. But dear, dear witches, I am here to tell you that your sort of classic Victorian parlor seance is a lot closer to the original spirit of necromancy than really any of us is ready to admit just because it doesn't, it doesn't sound as cool. And so sort of the rest of the loop in this like full circle history moment is really just a wild ride. And I think for this, we absolutely have to dig in deep. Um, Like before people lived in houses deep, like to these people, Mesopotamia, would be like science fiction.
1: Oh, shit.
0: Like, they would, these people would see a house and be like, the fuck is that?
1: Ah, what's so, so old?
0: Okay, but they invented two very cool things, um, ancestor worship and presumably necromancy, as it was originally defined, which I did want to say, necromancy etymology, uh, the etymology, of the word necromancy is really uh, like speaking to dead spirits, and for prop, mainly for the purposes of prophecy. So it really has nothing to do for thousands of years with bringing dead people back to life in a bodily form. Um, and we're gonna circle back around to that at the end. Uh, but we're talking about necromancy in its traditional sense. So, but before organized religion came along, there was only one big name in spirituality, and that was your local shaman. Uh, And shamanistic spiritualities relied heavily on ancestor worship because it, and it makes a whole lot of sense because these are very much like hand to mouth people. They really do not have time to conceptualize sky daddy uh but what they could easily conceptualize was that the chief before this one had some pretty cool ideas and maybe we should save his skull and pass it around if we need advice you know um which yes that very morbid very creepy maybe even flat out gross to us but i think it is easy to see why this makes sense as a spirituality i mean you know these are and if you really think about it, like people in these sort of hunter-gatherer societies, like your parents would teach you how to survive in a world that is very hard to survive. And probably are you are outliving them um, by a long shot. And I, I mean, you know, all of the other gruesome shit they had to do, it probably wasn't that weird for them to have their parents' skull lying around.
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's one of the least weird things we've heard about older humans doing. (laughs) Like, it makes sense. And I feel like the leap to ancestor worship is much more logical than like, sky daddy, if you're just struggling to not die. yeah, You're like
0: struggling to not die. Um, And I think, you know, it's but archaeology backs me up here. So these people, we could call them cave people. We could call them hunter-gatherers. They, they did engage in using skulls and bones as shamanic totems. And I think, you know, certain people, certain important people, like a chief... Like someone who, you know, like these are, these are their, their ancestors that they worship. You know, yeah. it's not, it's not your dead bead uncle. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, someone from the gathering bee team. Like you really have to be important to go on the wall of skulls.
1: I mean, hashtag goals.
0: You know, it's like, uh, it's like the high score, the high scoreboard. But so, but archaeology backs us up. They did save skulls for shamanic reasons, uh, but the strong belief is that these totems were used to communicate with the spirits of the ancestors, which really is like the true necromancy. It's all about communing with an ancestral spirit or like a passed-on spirit. Doesn't have to be your ancestor uh, to to get some hidden knowledge because you get this hidden knowledge in the afterlife. Um, and but I think it is kind of chilling. To imagine these sort of caveman shamans consulting like skulls on sticks in a cave, like s- very spooky.
1: I love it.
0: I love Almost it. A, almost a little Lord of the Flies.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, sucks to your ass, Mar, but it's still one uh, of my favorite lines from that book.
0: But, uh, you know, which kind of, you know, speaking of like a skull on a stick, it's like, do you remember Cathed?
1: I do remember Cathed cat head
0: yeah which is which is cat head um which was and this is you know we found which isn't it creepy that we still chose to hang out on that bridge
1: but it, it was very on brand it was very, I mean it was very on
0: brand at the time but like looking back it's like obviously someone else was hanging out around there that put a cat head on a stick and yeah. then left it there until it was a cat skull on a stick but,
1: and we were just like this is chill this we'll is hang chill
0: out. let's hang out anywho but i feel like that's a good segue for a pretty significant time jump and so speaking of cat heads on a stick our next stop on the necromancy express is ancient egypt uh
1: That, I feel tens, tens, tens across the board for that segue.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) Uh, Which is, I think, you know, uh, saying that, I think a lot of people are like, oh, we're going to be talking about Osiris and the Egyptian Book of the Dead. And you're wrong. So sorry, you're wrong. Uh, Because as much as like the Book of the Dead sounds like it would be a necromantic text, it's not uh, in the traditional sense. Nor did the priesthood of Osiris, god of the underworld, for those of you who do not remember. They don't do much of anything in the way of what was considered necromancy at the time. So the Book of the Dead and the Cult of Osiris were mainly concerned with how to get to the afterlife successfully and what to expect once you got there. Um, And really nothing beyond that. Which isn't to say that Egyptians didn't have necromancers. uh, They just had nothing to do with mummification or Osiris or the book of the dead or pyramids or any of the stuff that you think you're, you know, it's like you watch the movie. That's a movie. That's the mummy. Okay. And that's, uh, that's a, that's a movie with Brendan Fraser, not.
1: And when the rock was still going by the rock in his credits, as opposed to Dwayne Johnson.
0: (laughs) Um, isn't it cool that we got to watch him transition from the rock To Dwayne the Rock Johnson. To To Dwayne Johnson. Dwayne Johnson. It's
1: like, come through, Scorpio Scorpion King. Come through. We're proud of you.
0: Um, But really, it's like not coming from the places you would expect. So they had their own necromancers, um, which were kind of like the magi, too. You know, it's like if you look really all over the Near East in this sort of like Egyptian... Mesopotamian, Babylonian, Persian, like all of these like near Eastern proto-civilization people. Um, They had, you know, they had the Magi, which was like, I guess, what the shamans turned into, like your local witch doctor, your... Your king's spiritual advisor, your soothsayer, your...
1: It's like all the lead up to what would become Rasputin.
0: (laughs) Right. Like these are the people who are doing necromancy. These are the people who are doing seances. These are the people... uh, These are not the people in the temples. These are not the people doing the burials in Egypt. They're like their own thing. And it was a little more accessible to the non ruling class. You know, it's like you could go to the oracle and hear from the spirits for reasonable accommodation price-wise. So, but we've kind of lost track here. They're very much in line with what the traditional spirit of necromancy is. They're going to contact the spirits for you. You can ask questions. That's it. Um, but I think a belief that is a common thread surrounding necromancers from this period onward is that once the spirit has passed on, they acquire this like hidden knowledge, which is beyond the reach of mortals and it is uh, pertaining to the future and the hidden forces in the mortal world. Uh, And so who better to ask in times of trouble than someone who has gained this knowledge, uh, which really goes back to like the truly ancient shamanistic necromancy. Like if you were in a bind, let's ask some ghosts (laughs) what would grandpa do well let's dig him up and ask him you know
1: (laughs) I love this I also do I had never really thought about it but that I think is a belief that humans have just carried I guess forever because there is still this assumption that when you die you somehow get access to all of this knowledge that you hadn't had before anyone who believes in an afterlife pretty much but it's like I, it is interesting that we make that assumption instead of just being like, nah, man, like Ted's going to know what Ted knows. But no, it's like Ted dies and then becomes all knowing.
0: Very powerful. Super, super Ted. Well, and it's like, uh, you know, even even the Egyptians held this belief that when you got to the the what they called the the field of reeds mm-hmm. or, um, you know, it's it's basically the Elysian fields. Um You know, there's some variation of this in all of these religions. But once you get there, you take on a divine aspect. Yeah. And in the Egyptian version, actually, you have to, like, fight monsters and make sacrifices to even get there. So They make you you earn it. You have to earn it, right? And so it's like, there's a certain amount of time after you die where you literally could not be contacted by a necromancer because you're busy. Like, you that's why they send you with so much shit in a pyramid is because you need sacrifices to make to certain there's like monsters, like just yeah. literally like blood smeared horror monsters that you have to like throw sacrifices at and like run <laughs> past them. It's great. Cra- there's, yeah. there's so much you have to do to just die in ancient Egypt. So like,
1: yeah, it's like what to expect when you're expecting the end really was like necessary for egyptians they had to be
0: prepared i think one fun fact that i didn't throw in here but i'm gonna throw it in now is that each version of the book of the dead is different based on who it's written for Mm. so it's it it was not like a one it's not like they had a bunch of copies of it and they just like put one in each tomb like they would make you a special one for when you died that was like your specific journey your specific map to the afterlife
1: Oh my God, I love that. Nick, we should do that for each other when we're old, whichever
0: one of us goes first. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But I think, you know, just to kind of pop in here in the middle, for those of you who did want a little bit of carnage and are finding this segment a bit dry, there is evidence that Egyptian necromancers would use a bowl of corpse blood, fresh corpse blood, uh, as a scrying glass to divine the future at times. So there's a little taste of gore just to tide you over till we get to the dark ages. Um, and where else would one go from Egypt except Israel? It is such a scenic walk. Practically the entire Old Testament is about it, but actually I this one was this was a fun one to dig up. I'm not a biblical scholar, I was forced to memorize Bible verses as a kid at church camp in order to go play volleyball. But that was sort of like in one ear out of my mouth and then out the other ear. Um, Because really it's just a bunch of nonsense, but okay. You know, uh, not to hate on the Christians, love y'all. Why are you listening to this podcast though? But love y'all. But the old Testament, AKA the Torah for all of our Jewish, which is out there. Not only do we have a really cool story about necromancy, it's presented as working. And in the context of the story, it's morally ambiguous. So there's not a stance made about whether it's good and evil. That's for other parts of the Bible to figure out. Uh, it's just presented as something that that someone could do. Um, so the story goes that Saul, the first king of Israel, was in a real bind because God is not speaking to him anymore. Because he's so disobedient Uh, and like, good for you, you know, like make your own stand.
1: Live your life,
0: Saul. Live your life. But to make matters worse, he needs some guidance because the Philistines are pretty much ready to attack any day now. And it's like, we just got this country. Can we not spill blood all over the floor? Like...
1: I just got these carpets done
0: like we just moved in um but as disobedient as he allegedly was to sky daddy he was obedient enough to have continued the very important work of driving all of the witches and seers out of the land of Israel so he's busy he's he's getting a busy signal from god beep, right beep. and he sent all the witches away and he's like pretty well and truly fucked except he has this idea to see if he can get his servants to find someone on the down low and like really just like who's available i need some guidance for the battle ahead um which leads him to the witch of endor which is a cool title um, this is probably like the coolest story from the whole Bible. I mean, so far you're you're not wrong. Um, which the witch of Endor is a necromancer. Um, Fuck
1: yeah, she is.
0: I mean, huge surprise in this segment, but and so even though he is the king of the Israelites, he has to go to her on top of the mountain of Endor, uh, to get his answers. And she summons an apparition of the prophet Samuel from his place in the afterlife to answer King Saul's questions, which is very nice of her. She probably thought she was going straight to jail. Like, I mean, I would not have answered that call. No, that one's getting screened for sure. Like, like, oh, the king that is famously driving the witches out of the land would like to meet up with me. Tell him
1: I'm not here. (laughs) tell him i'm in the shower tell him i already left
0: (laughs) um but okay but no so she summons the prophet samuel and samuel is literally like why would you do that i was comfy in paradise also aren't you and yahweh sort of beefing right now this is a pretty fucked up thing for a king of israel to be doing I mean, we can't all be mourning people. <laughs> I feel like that is how I would feel if I got necromanced out of my eternal splendor in heaven. Um, but he's already there. So he's like, he deigns to answer a question. And the most important question of Saul's life, what is going to happen in the battle with these damn Philistines? And Samuel gives it to him straight. He's like, if you engage in this battle, you and your whole family are going to die. And even though King Saul went all the way up a mountain and used dark magic to summon a dead holy prophet, He decides to do it anyway, and him and his whole family die. And that's what the Bible has to say about necromancy. That it was right. That it was right. And um, good job, Witch of Endor, for doing that. I hope he paid her well. Right. But, you know, that's it. Which brings us to Greece. And this is where things get a little funky and, like, a little bit more like an Edgar Allan Poe story. And uh, I think just to kind of dive in, I think most of us are familiar with the Oracle at Delphi, likely the most famous place to get prophecies done in the ancient world. But while the Delphic Oracle inhabited the top of the mountain complex, there was another Oracle at Delphi, the Oracle of the Dead. Uh, And in a cave that fed three of the four underworld rivers, um, the Oracle of the Dead would channel spirits of the departed to give prophecies and it was said to be just as popular as the regular oracular servants.
1: Oh, my God. Why is this not more well known?
0: So I, and, you know, I did watch a little YouTube video about it. And the the cave is very spooky. Uh, uh, obviously, the Oracle of the Dead would, would not be in a non-spooky cave. Yeah, but it does. But it does kind of line up with the class, the classical necromancy. Like I'm going to channel a spirit. I'm going. The spirit is going to answer questions for you, and that's that. That's necromancy, you guys. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's not about zombies. Don't hate me. Um, But the Greeks and Romans did literally spice up their necromancy by using heavy doses of nightshades to induce vision states to help them along with their prophecies and may have even been high as fuck on weed as well um but that's speculative but we do know they did eat hella nightshades to get vision to go on vision quests so people we're
1: talking balls forever man
0: people have been tripping balls forever um and you know it's like i'm sure lots of people died poisoning themselves with uh Deadly nightshades, some just. hellbore, hellbore, uh, nandrake, Belladonna, lots of poisons out there used to induce these states. But this is kind of where that comes in. I mean, surely I, I, it's it's pretty pretty obvious to me just looking at it that shamans were probably doing something psychoactive as part of their vision quests. But really, don't have time to speculate about it. But they but we do know that the Greeks and Romans did. And so I think that's a a good thing to note here. But the Greeks and Romans also did some weird shit. Okay, skull necromancy. So in the mythological realm, Orpheus, who did try to play a more modern style necromancer uh, by traveling into the underworld to bring back his lover Eurydice and was famously thwarted by a don't look back clause. um, We do get a little taste of skull necromancy right at the very end. So... Uh, after being beheaded in Thrace, Orpheus' skull and Lear float down a river and out to sea where they wash up on the Isle of Lesbos. Uh, and it is said that the head and the Lear were singing melancholy morning music even after that much time. And wow. it should be noted that Orpheus was famously in the myth. Uh, the child of one of the muses and sometimes it changes which one it is but that's where he gets his incredible musical abilities because he's a hero but he's also you know the most beautiful singer in all of Greece Um, and continued singing after his death uh, as as a disembodied head and so the local oracles make a cottage industry using Orpheus's disembodied head to perform prophecy until the muses come and put a stop to it. Uh, and by giving the head a proper burial, um, he can then go to the afterlife and uh, return to his love, Eurydice, which is a uh, nice end of the story. But uh, apparently after that, they would use his skull for necromancy and made a whole Orphic mystery cult uh, around using his skull to do prophecies, which is cool.
1: I mean, I do have to say, just remember Orphic cults, because we're talking about Orphic cults in a minute. Great. Yeah.
0: But so this is an example of skull necromancy in myth, but it was a real practice. And so uh, King Cleomedes of Sparta reportedly had the head of his best friend and advisor preserved in a jar of honey so that he could still be in consulted on the great matters of the day um so you've heard of skull on a stick move over because now we've got preserved head in a jar yes so it's skull on a stick 2.0 um and while we think of the greeks and romans as like the peak of european civilization They were on the slip and slide to the Dark Ages.
1: (laughs) Sorry, the visual of on the slip and slide to the Dark Ages. It's like, y'all, the end of this is not fun anymore.
0: (laughs) Right. It's like, ooh, (laughs) we invented democracy. But shit's about to go downhill. Um, Fast. (laughs) But this is sort of the time, you know, things get scarier and necromancy starts involving grim aspects of death and this is where it starts to get a little spooky so they start to think that like you need to have skulls and bones and like they would drink unfermented grape juice which was abhorrent to them because it should be wine Um, but also because i
1: feel like that stands today
0: but honestly i mean yeah grape grape juice come on Uh, but it does it does look like blood but wine also looks like blood, uh, so I don't know what that's about. I don't see why it couldn't have been wine. But hey, you know that's that's my two cents. Also, I think like fresh grape juice too. Like, I mean, if you were thinking like Greeks and Romans, like they probably didn't drink filtered anything. So I would imagine that, like, this is going to sound so gross, but I would just imagine that, like, fresh grape juice with like a little bit of the pulp still in it probably kind of looked like coagulated blood a little bit. That's fair. I like gross, but I'm just thinking about it, you know. But no, so and like using human remains and spells also kind of like takes off in the slippery slope to the dark ages Uh, because they they did have this idea. That when someone died, there was like leftover vital energy left in the body, which isn't really wrong. I mean, that's what mushrooms grow on, you know, is all of that chemical energy that's left in your body. But they believed that there was a a great deal of potential, like unpotentiated magical energy. And just like that. These were uh, this is a very energetic source material to be using in spells uh is human bodies and you know the human remains bit does kind of put necromancers squarely in the black magic side when christians do eventually take over during the dark ages and i i would say rightfully so you know it's a little spooky hanging out with bodies all the time um having a bunch of skulls at your house
1: yeah especially in a time with like not as the sanitation was not where it is today.
0: I'm sure it didn't smell good.
1: Yeah. And like there's marrow in bones. Like bones don't start being totally bleached and boiled. Just to remind people, I imagine a lot of these bones probably weren't actually fully cleaned.
0: Oh my God. No. Do you want to hear? I mean, we have to tell this story. We have to tell this story because we're talking about necromancy and we're talking about people keeping bones in their house And I remember one time, um, we had found a dead deer with the antlers on it and, oh my God, this story is like making me gag a little bit, but I'm going to, I'm going to push through. I'm going to tell, I'm going to tell this story because me and my brother, and it was like in this like dried up Creek bed. I mean, my brother thought it was really cool in like, you know, that kind of like morbid way when you're like a little boy, Yeah, like you just think stuff like that's kind of cool, but we waited until the ants and stuff did their thing and like it was kind of sun bleached because we and and, you know like that's what what my dad had said to do he was like well you know let nature do its thing if you want to bring the skull home because we wanted to bring the skull home and we were like can we and um so we did and it was like white and, and dry on the outside so we bring it home and then oh my god the smell once you got that into like an enclosed room because Mm. not only was there still like bone marrow in the jaw that was still like gross and rotten it's like the stuff like the brain and stuff inside the skull was still like gooey and yeah so we ended up we ended up throwing it away but like I'll just never forget like because we like put it up on the shelf and like you know kind of went about our business and then like next time we went in the room, like just this stench of like death. And um, it's really fucking gross. But so yeah, you gotta you, you gotta clean your bones, people.
1: Clean your bones. That's what we learned
0: here. You gotta clean your bones, people. But, you know, but it's like, also Christians viewed graveyards as consecrated spaces. Um, so whereas before they might chuck you in a mass grave, a lot of people just did, cremation for a long time. I mean, I think now we think of that as as kind of more of like an Eastern thing, but Europeans did plenty of cremation. That's why there's not like corpses on corpses on corpses. Um, Graveyards are actually a terrible idea as far as utilization of space, Um, but Christians demand it, and uh, yeah, so we're moving on. But I mean, but yeah, if a graveyard is sacred space, then and a, a necromancer has to go to a graveyard to like do their work, then you can't really have like witchcraft going on at your holy Christian graveyard. They just don't play well with others. They just don't play well with others. And actually, you know, I was reading at the time the kinds of magic that were okay with them. Like herbalism was okay with that. Like, you know, your little village witch doctor making salves and potions and stuff for, for your common ailments. Fine. Catholic church, early Catholic church, which did not have a, a stranglehold on power and was like, kind of trying to play nice, was like, that's fine. Yeah. They drew the They're light like,
1: in. We're, we're basically witches. We burn incense and do a lot of ritual at all of our masses anyway. Yeah, we
0: get it. We both love wine. That's something we can talk about.
1: We like wine, uh, burning herbs, eh?
0: yeah, eh? yeah. Um, maybe we'll bop, maybe we can trade some holidays.
1: Yeah. That,
0: that could be fun. That could be fun. I, I think we're still waiting to get our holidays from them.
1: Yeah. They must have but gotten lost in the mail.
0: They must have gotten lost in the mail. Uh, but I but I can see it. I can see why they weren't into necromancy. It's a little spooky. It's a little creepy. It's a little, it violates sacred space. It violates what to them was sacred about death and the sacred spaces of death. And, you know, like, it's not, I mean, it's not even like Yule where you could just, we're not gonna sacrifice animals, but you could keep the tree, you could keep the wine, um, you know, take the day off. It's Christmas now, (laughs) but no. So, but I would argue that, speaking of Christian necromancy, um, I would argue that like Day of the Dead though, And like all of its various counterparts, smack of like OG necromancy though.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Because it's all about communing with spirits and like ancestor worship. Um, That's my perspective, not theirs. They don't see it that way. But um, moving right along though. Uh, And I think this is kind of where we get into this very strange era of like the Renaissance leading into the industrial era where you have lots and lots and lots of experimentation going on people are learning anatomy with corpses um there's a lot going on at this time with witch hunting where uh suspected witches are accused of doing a lot of things that probably never happened uh vis-a-vis being a necromancer and all of the horrible thing. i mean because doing something horrible to a dead body it's 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 desecration you know it's like burning a flag to them there it's like the worst thing you could accuse someone of is like killing a baby or like disturbing a uh, uh, a body at rest um so and, and it, it kind it's like witch hysteria so it's like you have to accuse them of like the worst possible things because otherwise people are going to be like why are we lighting this woman on fire
1: yeah this poor old lady was just making herb tinctures. No, nah, that's fine, man.
0: Yeah. No, uh, no, 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 no. She was raising an army of the dead. Oh, shit. Brenda's got to go. Brenda's got to go. <laughs> so people are learning about anatomy with corpses. People are accusing witches of necromancy. Um, I mean, you know, it's like medical experiments, very spooky, but ultimately had to be done for the greater good of society, But in like popular fiction, this really brings about this fanciful notion of like reanimated corpses and like what we think of as a necromancer in modern times. Uh, And of course, this kind of thing does eventually lead to things like Frankenstein's monster and like vampires that can raise an army of the dead and like real classic horror motifs.
1: Yeah. If you want to see some fun classic horror motifs, and you haven't already, Penny Dreadful. I cannot recommend it it enough for Victorian horror. And like, eventually we
0: end up like making a full circle to like late Victorian era. People are rediscovering paganism in a big way and like spiritism which has been all but banned for the time being. And we have the parlor seance, you know, knock twice if it's really you, my beloved Albert. And it's now known by these like fancy new names like spiritism, spiritual mediumship. Um, But it lines up like this kind of thing lines up more with the classic notion of a necromancer as someone who can what channel the spirit and answer questions for you. Um, and that's really like the OG necromancy. And so like now we sort of c- confused necromancy with a mostly fictional practice, uh, which is based on the things they accused witches of. Um, and we really like called the true banner bearers of necromancy, like different names. um, like mediums or, you know, we call psychics. it psychics, uh, you know, it's like, but it's those are the people that are necromancers in the traditional sense. Um, and I, I think, you know, kind of like rolling over here into this week's QWP, I feel like there was an opportunity here to talk about some of the history of voodoo and um african and creole mysticism um which are very interesting and really a lot of that stuff and a lot of that lore does line up with what a lot of people would be expecting us to talk about in a segment about necromancy like but i think it, that all of that to say it's always a good time to say that that is not culture. you know as a caucasian culturally i don't find it appropriate to work in those areas of the craft um, because I I have respect for other cultures. I try to stick to my European roots um, because I feel like that is, is way less of a cultural appropriation. Uh, I mean, I, my family is from Louisiana, so it's like, yes, I have been to new Orleans, you know, it's like, I've heard about it. I've talked about it, but I don't do it. And if you're of the Caucasian persuasion, neither should you. Um, it's a respect thing. You know, stay in your yeah. lane.
1: Stay in your lane. There's so much to pull from that's not appropriating.
0: But Ludo. I would But I would say, you know, if you want to hear about some interesting non-European or Egyptian-based uh, necromancy and, and sort of ideas like that. I would encourage you to do your own research. It is fascinating, but again, it's not, not for us to do. Yeah. It's interesting. Sure. It's interesting to learn about, but it's not for us to do. So yeah.
1: A plus plus. Well, a. before before we get into Nick's, I wanted to take a brief moment to do our plugs for you mm-hmm. guys. So First of all, thank you so much to all of our Patreon supporters. If you would like to join our Patreon and see our gorgeous faces and get a slightly more unedited, definitely more unhinged version of the episode every week, you can join by going to patreon.com slash wands and fronds pod. You get all sorts of goodies for being a member. Plus you get to support us, which is awesome. Um, on that note, Rate, review, subscribe. One of the most helpful things you can do for any podcasters that you care about, which I hope we are among,
0: is to rate, review, subscribe. Why are you here if you don't care
1: about us? If you don't care about us, (laughs) we don't have time for you. Um, And Spotify is supposed to be launching podcast reviews this year. So keep an eye Um, out for that. Actually,
0: I did not have a... I did not see a spot to put a review, but I did finally see a spot to give us five stars on Spotify. Yay. So I already gave us five stars because obviously I did. Um, of course. But you can too.
1: You can too. And I would like to say that no one has taken us up yet on if you are on your cell phone listening to the podcast, screenshot it, share it on Instagram and tag us and Nick will give you a one card tarot
0: reading. My, my cards are just sitting there.
1: Yeah, I don't know why no one's taking us up on this. You totally should. And you can do that on Instagram by tagging at and Pod. You can also email us at wandsandfrancepod at gmail.com if you want to talk to us. Mm. I think that's that. Did I miss anything?
0: (laughs) No. Well, I just, you know, the Patreon is patreon.com slash wandsandfrancepod. And speaking of tarot, you know, it's like if you join at one of the higher levels you do get a tarot reading from me every month, which uh, goes quite a bit more in depth than one card. So a little something fun for you guys, which actually I'm doing, uh, doing my tarot spreads tomorrow. So
1: yeah. And we are also working on scheduling our January coven meeting, and we're going to do a group ritual around self-love that I think is going to be very on brand because y'all know it's a lover's year, but Nick and I have very strong feelings about love magic in general. Mm. But I think self-love is such a big theme for this year. So I'm really excited about that. Anyway. So now that that's out of the way, we're in a spooky. sod we have
0: so spooked.
1: Are you spooked? I'm spooked.
0: I'm spooked.
1: So of course we had to cover the Greek goddess of the night. There were no other options, Nyx is the daughter of chaos, and her birthplace is isn't even in Gaia because she is a primordial goddess. So, side note, for those of you who don't know, chaos is considered the origin of everything. It's the primordial void that everything comes from, including, you know, the primordial deities and ultimately everything on earth, including all the gods. But sometimes. Instead of the primordial void, um, it's translated as the gaping void which just makes me lull because I am 12. Anyway, so Nyx is a primordial goddess, which means like other primordial deities, she doesn't really have what we think of as like a human form. And she's sometimes also understood to be night itself, like the personification. We do see her depicted in artwork sometimes though, as a woman enrobed in dark mists. And she's also occasionally shown with wings or being pulled by a chariot across the night sky. And Nyx is also able to create her own dark spirits, including fates, sleep, death, strife, and pain. So she really like, she gets into making her own stuff, right? Um, Erebus, the god of darkness, was her consort, and they gave birth together to Hemera and Aether, day and light. So they're the opposite of dark and night we've got that's so that's so, that's
0: like some that's like some weird punnett square shit
1: right so every night, the, the story goes that Erebus and Nyx would stroll out of Tartarus, hand in hand, apparently, like couple goals. I, and they, I'm just
0: imagining like Morticia and Gomez. For
1: I mean, reason. I think that's fair. And Erebus and Nyx would stroll around and block out all of the light of Aether and bring darkness upon the world for night. And then the following morning, Hemera chases the dark mists away and Nyx goes home. The mother and daughter did share a home at the edges of the world and they would greet each other at dawn and dusk, but they never shared the house at the same time, which is how it should be at a certain age. No, I must say.
0: I, I, I agree. It's a good, <laughs> it's a good thing to right? be a little a little, you know, it's like you can't be hanging around mom's skirts forever.
1: Exactly. So uh later in Greek mythology, eos and Helios would replace Aether and Himera. But Nyx was never replaced, even like in late Greek mythology. She was highly respected. Nyx did have other children as well, including Adgeras, Moros, Nemesis, the Kyrs, the Hounds of Hades, like basically badass lady demons, and the Onoroi, the winged demons that personified dreams that Nick has talked about in the past. It's also very worth noting, if you've listened to this podcast ever before, that even Zeus was afraid of Nyx because she is older and stronger than him. She's literally the only other deity that he feared, like bows the fuck down. So in this myth, Hera asked Nyx's son, Hypnos, to put Zeus to sleep, which makes sense when you think about all the shit Hera put up with, uh, because she was trying to plot against Zeus in this story but Hypnos wasn't strong enough to fully put Zeus out in his like sleepy coma. And Zeus wakes up as super pissed and decides to hunt down Hypnos to try and get revenge. But Nyx, of course, you know, let her son hide out in her cave and Zeus was so afraid of pissing off Nyx that he literally dropped the entire goddamn issue. He was just like, Oh, you're with Nyx. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I'm just going this way. Right. So I love that. I love that Zeus is afraid of her.
0: I I also think it's great that Zeus seemingly assumes that, like him and Hera, that Nyx is going to be just like a terrible mother and like, let him duke it out on his own. She's like, no, like, this is my kid.
1: Yeah, fuck off.
0: Like, our family sticks together. Y'all are actually bad parents. Uh, Yes.
1: (laughs) And I do, I find it interesting that even though she never does anything remotely evil compared to some of the stuff Zeus does in mythology, she does still inspire a lot of fear and there wasn't a dedicated cult to her, but that's actually pretty common for primordial deities. There weren't many cults to primordial gods because they're not thought to have much care about like what people are up to because they are just so different than humans. But you'll a lot of times when you're seeing artwork where Nyx is depicted, she's featured in the background with other deities that were worshipped by humans and had like had their own cults. People like Artemis and Hecate. You see Nyx popping up in artwork with them. So of course Nyx has been linked to witches for a really long time. Witches were thought to be the most powerful in the dark, and some people did foolishly believe that we could only perform most of our spells at night, which they don't even know they they have no idea but because of that and these you know these connections of like darkness and magic nyx was actually really really popular in orphic cults because or people in orphic cults really revered gods and goddesses with darker aspects than the rest of the pantheon so they prayed to like persephone and hecate and these cult members actually taught that nyx not chaos was the primordial form which all life springs from. Everything began in the night. And they also believe that Eros, the personification of love, was one of the first children of Nyx, as opposed to being Aphrodite's kid, which meant that love, and specifically romantic and sexual love, existed before Gaia even came into being, according to the teachings of Orphic cults, which... I love they also thought that Nix was capable of giving more accurate prophecies than any gods, including Apollo. And so we also see some of the like Orphic cult ideas about Nix as a prophet creep into some more mainstream writings as well. So that's something that the Orphic cults believed in that you eventually see disseminated in other things. All in all, I really do think like the Orphic cults sound pretty fucking dope. I'm not going to lie.
0: <laughs> I mean, I, it, it, it's like. Did they, uh, is is this for us? I think, are we in an Orphic cult? Are we in an Orphic cult? God damn, God uh, damn it. Uh, I, I said I wasn't going to join a cult.
1: I know. Um, Even though Nyx was pretty fearsome, though, she's also considered like a source of comfort, right? Like in the play Agamemnon, the Greek troops actually thanked Nyx for helping them win the Trojan War because it was the darkness and the stillness of night that allowed them to sneak into the city and end the 10-year siege. And some folks would, they're like Romans in particular, who called her Knox, um, even like welcomed her because night meant the end of a long day of like work and toil and, you know, delicious rest time. That's what night meant. So you want to honor or work with Nix in your practice? I could see why. <laughs> it is said that Nix is able to help us uncover the deepest truths in our unconscious and how to navigate the night and shadow times. So according to is on the internet, she also is surprisingly willing to work with people for a primordial goddess. And it's said that she's an excellent goddess to call on for shadow work, duh. But also if you're working on upping your divination skills, especially those about the future, she also excels at astrology and magic related to the stars. Remember, she strolls across the sky every night to bring the darkness. And some witches even dedicate their divination tools to her as an offering. Like, they'll dedicate their pendulum or their tarot deck, um, which I think is really cool. You could also think about putting a symbol of Nyx under your pillow to have prophetic dreams, which, you know, I was like, how great would it be to embroider a symbol for Nyx on the underside of your pillowcase?
0: Uh, These are these are the ideas that yeah this is why you get the big black shaded. in
1: i'm like this is why we need to do one book on pillow poppet magic and one book on welcome mat magic anyway um some suggested offerings though or representations for your altar include night blooming flowers red wine dark chocolate berries things with black cats on them moonstone selenite Black onyx, anything with stars, an owl decor. So if you wanted to embroider a symbol for Nix on your pillowcase, you could do like a little owl or even just little stars, which I think is just super darling. I'm like,
0: is my whole house already like an, an altar, altar to, to Nix? To
1: yeah, kind of.
0: It's like, it's like Nix and the Norns and, um, you know, uh, we but I'm like, really it's like Artemis and Hecate, really? yeah, we're like we're we're already more than halfway there.
1: basically. Uh, as far as colors, of course, I think anything black or silver makes good sense, and even deep purples and blues. And I was thinking, if you wanted to do like a ritual with her, again, I think dark moon nights, because that is the deepest darkness, make the most sense to me. So my sources today were Greek net. Hit us up if you want to sponsor us. You oh guys my God. We use it like, a lot. Uh <laughs> they should be paid. They really should. Tandrosemary.com and high Uh
0: that's that sounds like a cool website.
1: Right. It was.
0: I'm I hope they, I hope they have some like sweet, like out-of-date uh, you know, like HTML website vibes. It's a, it's a good one. I I mean, I'm not like not out of date in a bad way, but you know, sometimes when you're like on the witch internet, like sometimes the pages have not been updated in 20 years and yeah, it's like a time capsule because the information is still fully relevant, but you're like, um, wow, we really did used to love HTML websites. Didn't we? (laughs) Uh, but that's Okay. We have got to move on because this is a long episode and I'm so sorry, y'all. I'm so sorry that we did not raise an army of the dead. I'm like, I'm apologizing, but also, you know what? Now, you know, now you're informed about necromancy. And I think Nyx uh, has got to be one of the cooler deities we've covered. I
1: think so. She's really badass.
0: So now I get to do the tarot scope and you guys, you know, it's like, I hate that I can't just come up here and be like sunshine and daisies to like brighten up the end of the episode here. But here we are, because for my lovely Taurus babies, um, I have drawn for you the Seven of Cups. And it is in the upright position. And this is cluing me in on a couple of things for you guys right now. So firstly, that you might have several options for what to do with your life on the table right now, which is usually a good thing, but you might be suffering from a serious bout of idealism. Uh, You might have your head in the clouds right now. Um, You don't seem particularly grounded in reality. And if you allow yourself to be led by your ego at this time, you might fall into a trap because All of these miraculous open doors are not what they appear to be at first, as is often the case in any dream. So you have to check back into planet Earth, and it might be a humbling experience when you do. The question to ask yourself is, are you living in a dream, or are you simply unable to come back down to Earth? So.
1: That's the question.
0: On that note... It is the bitter end. And to all of you spooky dead bitches, what what do we say to the spooky dead bitches, Shannon?
1: Ugh, to the spooky, wonderful dead bitches. We say blessed be, bitches.
0: Blessed be, you spooky dead bitch. <laughs> Goodbye. I know. Uh, a middle school girl. Fucking around with the Ouija board, asking if, you know, Danny from Homeroom is going to end up being her husband is actually like very true to the original spirit of necromancy.